it's crazy people don't know about Steve McDonald and Jack Maple. I was going to suggest to Mayor Adams that they put a t- statue to Jack in Times Square, complete with bow tie and Hamburg hat. Beats Jackie Gleason, I guess. <laughs> and Stephen, you know, it wouldn't be bad to see the two of them, Stephen in his wheelchair and Jack in his bow tie. Um, Stephen's wife is always upset if they remove, if they don't show the ventilator. Because to her, that was a big thing that he went around. He could not breathe on his own through all those years for 30 years, and he kept going everywhere. I mean, I mean it's unbelievable the guy went anywhere. News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel uh, here again with uh, Michael Daly, reporter of the Daily Beast. It's a news website and uh, the author of New York's Finest, Stories in the NYPD and the Hero Cops Who Saved the City. Michael. The book is largely about Stephen McDonald and Jack Maple as its two central characters. Right, that's what they are. Yep. But you know, I, I'm hoping that this uh, this moment of protests about the police and all that business, if you could sort of take me through before we start talking about them. What, what made you decide to write this sort of book about these exceptional and exemplary people? Uh, not just those two, and and wanting to tell their stories now. Well, murders went from more than 2,000 a year in the city of New York to under 300. And the only measure by which life became better for people in the city's tougher neighborhoods was not schools, was not health care, was not jobs, it was crime. Crime went down. And the reason crime went down was the police. Crime didn't go down for any other reason. I mean, you, I don't care what you say because I, I saw what the police... I was with Jack Maple when, in a time when everybody said that violent crime cannot be reduced in the city of New York. And among the people who said that was Rudy Giuliani. Jack sat down and he wrote on a napkin, very simple strategies. And he said, if we do this, I'll cut violent crime in half. He didn't say I, he said we. That's the difference between him and some of these other people now. He said, we'll cut violent crime in half in two years. And he did. So let's step back from there for a minute. And for listeners who don't know, tell them a bit about uh, Jack Maple, Cave Cop, Oak Bar and a Lands guy, and uh, how he came to be somebody who could uh, write something down on a napkin and share it with uh, with the mayor. One thing uh, you need to know about Jack is there's a few things. First of all, his maternal grandmother was a deaf mute back in a time when... Uh, People call deaf mutes dummies. Um, and she she loved to dance, and she could feel the vibrations and dance to the vibrations. So she would go to dance halls and dance to the music. And there she met this very handsome guy who, And she was beautiful, and she's dancing, and uh, he can hear and all that. And, and, you know, maybe he liked the idea that she was kind of, that he, he that he could dominate her more easily than he could a woman who could hear and fight back. And that the, um, and he, she had, he had, she had two kids with him, and then uh, he was physically abusive to her. And then came a day when, uh, she ran into this guy she was in deaf and dumb school with, grammar school with, uh, named Frank McCormick. And uh, they started seeing each other. And the next thing you know, she runs off with him and Jack's mother and Jack's aunt, her two daughters. And um, they settle in. And he worked at the Brooklyn Eagle, 
the time the Broken Eagle hired uh, people who couldn't, with hear, hearing impaired people to work by the presses because they were so loud and the noise didn't bother them. So they're leading a pretty nice life. And then comes a day when she's suddenly very ill and they take her to the hospital. Um, they're living on Rogers Avenue in Brooklyn. They take her to the hospital and the doctors say, this woman's been stabbed some days before and now she has peritonitis. And she hadn't said anything. And by the time the police got there, they can't communicate with her. She's done a number, but even if they could, she really couldn't say much because she was on the way out and then she died. And, um, and then sometime after that, Frank McCormick, the guy that she ran off with, the deaf guy that she ran off with, he gets found in Columbus Circle um, in Manhattan with his head caved in. And Jack was convinced that both his grandmother and his step-grandfather were murdered by his grandfather. And Jack's mother was convinced of the same. And Jack was left with the feeling that you'd see all these other big crimes in the papers, front pages and all this, and then there was nothing at all about it. The only mention of his, interestingly enough, of his grandmother's murder was when the Brooklyn Eagle ran a front page across with a big map about the murders in a two-week period, chaos and murder in Brooklyn over a two-week period, and it listed all the murders over a two-week period, and it had a pin map, essentially. And number seven was Jack's grandmother. Interestingly enough, there was another one, a woman murdered at 7th Avenue and President Street in what is now Ultra Ridge Park Slope. She was beaten to death for, I think, $2 for rosary beads. Um, so the then police commissioner announced that they were going to, in response to that, that woman, the woman who got killed at President Street, her daughter complained that the police did nothing. So the commissioner, you know, lady got killed for rosary beads and $2 and the police didn't do anything. So he says, all right, we're going to do something about, we're going to address crime. And he starts something that's essentially what would later become is a model for what later became the street crime unit is there's three plainclothes cops in unmarked cars going around as parts of Brooklyn where the crime went up. Crime went way down when they started doing it. It actually worked. But then there was an allegation of corruption, so the cops forgot about crime for a while and went back to worrying about corruption and forgot about crime until Jack Maple came back, um, came now, Jack Mabel, so he gets raised in Richmond Hill, Queens. Um, his father was a deeply PSD'd survivor of the Battle of the Bulge who worked in the, in the post office at Penn Station in Manhattan. And at midnight, the train from Dover, Delaware would come in with the bodies of everybody who had been killed from Vietnam from the New York side of the Mississippi River. And Jack's father took him there and Jack watched these coffins being unloaded and set on the platform. And his father said, you want to be one of those? And Jack didn't. And at that time, Jack was not college bound, but at that time you got a college deferment if you went on the police. And meanwhile, Jack at age 16, like every working class kid in that part of Queens took every civil service test you could. Yep. He's going to Brooklyn Tech, right? And like schlepping there from Queens. Yeah. He went to Brooklyn Tech. He, 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 um, <laughs> he didn't understand how smart he was. I mean, he just, he went and took the test and ends up Brooklyn Tech. Um, and he's there and, but he got called to the NYPD right in his senior year at Brooklyn Tech. So he dropped out of Brooklyn Tech. Why do I need to finish this? <laughs> I'm going on the cops. I don't need it. So he was all set to go on the cops. He drops out of Brooklyn Tech. And I think the day before he's supposed to go to the NYPD, they announce a hiring freeze. So he's not going to the NYPD. And this also means no draft deferment, right? No draft deferment. And, and this but he is had also been called by the transit police. So... 
We didn't get the NYPD, so he goes on the transit police. Now, the transit police are the cops that work on the subway. They're also called cave cops. They're also called the O police because if you're in a bar and you're talking to a girl and she goes, oh, are you a cop? And you go, yeah, and she's impressed. And then she says, where do you work? He says, why, uh, uh, transit. And the invariable response was, oh. So they call them the O police. <laughs> and they're a separate department at this point. Yeah, they were. Um, and... Uh, the, the merge was many years later. So Jack goes in, and he's a subway cop, and uh, the city cops treated them terribly. I mean, they had if you made an arrest as a transit cop, you had to go, you had to bring your arrest into the city precinct, and they just pissed all over them. And um, that's something Jack never forgave. Um, so he's he's there and he's you know he's working as a transit cop. The um, he shows he's a little bit different. Uh, early on, there was a guy who was swinging a big metal pipe, and Jack thought he was clear of the pipe, but he was off by a little bit, and he ended up with his head cracked open. And he's in the emergency room, and the chief of department and the mayor and everybody else comes, and he's lying there, and um, they're cutting off his clothes, and. Uh, Turns out he's wearing his wife's underwear because he couldn't find any clean ones. He's wearing his, her bikini underwear. He couldn't find any clean ones that morning. So he's kind of looking at him, and Jack said, "Actually, Chief, they're uh, they're quite comfortable." Um. So he kind of proved from the beginning he was a little different, and uh, like at one point they wanted him to get all the homeless people out of the tunnels around Grand Central. So he got them all up and he formed what he called the Bums Army. And he had them all fall into formation and they would march across the center of Grand Central on command. And they loved it. They had a great time with him. They loved Jack. For a long time, he knew all the people who lived in the tunnels. Um, all right, so he's also, the other thing about Jack is when he was a kid during the Christmas pageant, he was always cast as like the beast of the manger or something. He was never a, a Joseph or a, one of the magi, none of that. He was always the guy who, he would peer through life through the, a paper mache head. And, um, and he'd be looking at them and nobody was looking at him. And that was a little bit like being a cave cop. And uh, so, but the other thing that happened was what he, he discovered that when he would go on break, go on meal, when he would go from the subway up to the street, all his supervisors are in the subway, right? And he was not at all answerable to the supervisors of the city police. So for that hour, he was like, he had his own police department, essentially, from his point of view. And if he saw anything going on, he would act on it. And um, he actually proved to be a natural genius for police work, but he also worked at it. Like he spent hours and hours and hours and hours in front of a mirror with guns, different guns under his clothes. And he could tell you not only was someone carrying a gun, he could tell you what kind of gun it was by the shape that they were making under their clothes. And, um, and he started making a record number of gun collars. And he was, the other thing he showed he was a little different was he would go up, he wouldn't pull, he would never pull his gun because he figured if I have my hand on that guy's gun, he can't hurt me with it. So he'd just walk up and bang, slam his hand on the guy's gun and hold up his shield. And that was it. Um, and he always had a rule, never take out your gun unless you're ready to use it. So he wasn't one of these guys that would, like, pull their gun all the time. Um, I don't know. what I'm not being very articulate today with all this. Uh, so he starts making a bit of a reputation for himself, something I was curious about that I think... Well, it's also... You know, he, he also started building, a, you know, resentment is a great <laughs> propellant sometimes in life, you know. Um, and he resented the city cops the way they treated him. And he resented the DA's office because what they would do with the cops, if a cop made a collar, they'd go to ECAB, it called. It was Early Case Assessment Bureau, right? So... But leave, they would leave the cops waiting for hours and hours and hours to get the, the cases processed. And like one guy, just to be funny, 
painted footprints up the wall. Like you went so crazy, you were literally climbing the walls. So they put footprints on the walls. And they'd be sitting there 10, 20, 24 hours. And the DAs would always go, well, you're getting overtime. What are you complaining about? But it was the way they were treated that Jack presented. And, um, and the other thing is that he became, all the active cops came to know each other because if you were an active cop, you made a lot of collars, which meant you sat in ECAB a lot, which meant you talked to a lot of other people, which meant you, kept, you got to know them. So I would always know if Jack, if a cop was really an active cop or not, I'd ask if they knew Jack. If they didn't, I knew they weren't. So I know that 19, by 1983, which is 40 years ago now, that uh, Maple's now 27 and that you'd come to know him reasonably well because you wrote a uh, pretty fantastic piece for New York Magazine about him. I knew him very well long before that. Called, called the cop who, uh, what is it? The, the cop who loved the Oak Bar. Yeah. So, so I'm hoping you, 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 you can sort of tell how you came to know him and how he came to find the Oak Bar. I came to know Jack because there was, I knew a guy who worked at the Queens DA's office who had a case involved, involving a shooting Jack was in. And um, at first he thought the story was complete bullshit. And... Jack didn't go off it at all. And then he went to the scene. The DA went to the scene. And there was a bullet hole in the sign in the subway, Bryant Park. It was exactly where it would have been if Jack had been telling the truth. So he kind of said to me, first of all, you got to meet this guy. Second of all, look for that bullet hole because that's the kind of detail that changes everything. So I did that. I got to know Jack. And it turns out what had happened to Jack was that he was... Working plain clothes. His idea of plain clothes was a canary yellow jumpsuit, and he was wearing what he called uh, Elton John sunglasses. And he and the other guy, they were looking to make drug callers by Bryant Park. There were people selling drugs out of the subway there and, and also at the subway entrance. So he's at the subway entrance, and he negotiates a drug sale with a guy and goes down with him. And um, Jack goes to make a collar, and they get in a tussle, and this is where Jack learned, don't take your gun out unless you're ready to use it. And the guy got his hands on the gun. And um, Jack had it out a little too far. The guy got his hands on it, and they started wrestling for it. And um, the gun swung around, and Jack clasped his hands. Jack was trying to stop the revolver. It was a revolver, the chambers from turning by holding his hands on it, and, but they were sweaty. And he couldn't, and the guy was getting ready to fire, and the, the muzzle's right inches from Jack's face, and Jack just moves the, just enough at the last instant, and it goes off, and his side of his face got burned by the muzzle flash. And then swung back towards him, and again, this time he pushed it the other way just enough, and bang, it went off again. And he, so he had a muzzle flash on each side of his face, and then he pushed the gun down between them, and he managed to get his finger on the trigger, uh, but he didn't know which way the gun was pointed. Pressed between them, but he knew the other guy was going to get the gun, so he figured, he gave Skyward, and he just started pulling. And uh, the guy rose up, and the guy was hit. Um, so it all gets done, and uh, Jack lets... He's working at Columbus Circle, District 1. He's got to get home to Queens. And to do that, he got the best way is to walk across Central Park South, catch the train to Queens, rather than go downtown, go over the, and all that. So particularly late at night. So he's walking across Central Park South. Um, he's got a muzzle flash burn on side of, each side of his face. He's covered with the guy's blood. Um, and he goes past the window's plate glass windows to the Oak Bar at the Plaza Hotel. And they're set kind of just the right height where you're walking by, you can gaze in. And he looks in, and it looks to him like nothing bad could ever happen there. <laughs> That's where you want to be. And, you know, he goes on home and uh, takes a shower and watches the guys. The water turns the 
guy's blood pink and he watches that go down the drain and then um and then you continue on with what could have been past what could have very easily been the end of your life and um then comes the time, and he keeps being a very active cop, keeps making record number of collars. He became the youngest detective in the transit police. And um, having once been a beast at the manger, he now can dress as if he's a star. So he decides that he really likes, you know, gets a nice suit. He likes the bow tie. He says it has a nice classic look. And he figures he'll wear a nice Hamburg hat. And he's walking to work at District 1. And he slows down as he gets to the Plaza Hotel because he's remembering. And the doorman says, good evening, sir. As if Jack could actually go in there. And I think that uh, Jack later said that a lot, of, a lot of transit cops think that there's like an alarm if one of them goes in, that like it goes off. Like this, is a, this working class slob doesn't belong in here. So Jack goes on up the steps finds his way to the Oak Bar, he goes in. He orders a club soda, or Chablis, I forget which. Um, he throws money on the bar, as you would if you were at a regular gym mill. And the guy, like, he tells right away that's a mistake. But then he realizes that for about the cost of a movie, he could sit there and nurse this drink for hours if he wants. And he gets in what he calls a little chit-chat <laughs> with some of the people there. And that's like his new place. He realized that he can go there. Um, and then at the same time, he starts, there was a commercial called for the thing called the money store. If you put up your house, get any amount, you know, and it keeps going on. He's sitting home. Cue Phil Rizzuta. There you go. So he's sitting there, the money store, the money store, the money store. And he all of a sudden realized that he could get that money and he could, you know, not just have a drink at the plaza, he could go to the Palm Court. He could he could live that life. And he's living in a house in Queens with yeah. his wife at the time, his right? Wife, right, two doors from his mother and father. And and his kid. I mean, this in some ways that Jack is like a great guy, but not the guy you'd want to be married to. Not necessarily the guy you'd want to always have your father be your father. But um he keeps trying not to do it, not to do it, not to do it. So finally, but the, he can't help himself. So he goes and he gets the money. He gets a check, I think, for $25,000. And he deposits it. And this is just when Citibank started with, the, you know, you could go to the bank and check your balance. And he keeps checking. It's like, you know, $9, $9, $9, $9, $25,000 and $9. And he went on a record roll. He, ding, ding. <laughs> <laughs> um, and meanwhile, he's making collars. And, uh, and so that, and he's driving the, I mean, and the, the, meanwhile, the transit, his bosses are trying to, he's driving them out of their minds because they don't, they don't want to make a collars. They're all worried about overtime and, you know, I think a turning point in Jack's life before the Oak Bar thing, there was a guy, Anthony V. Bowser, who called himself Socrates with a gun. He's one of these cops who memorized the thesaurus and uses big words to make everybody think, well, this is not just a cop. And uh, he was a chief on the city police, and he got jammed up because a bunch of kids went wild up at Yankee Stadium at the big Ali fight, or was Ali whatever the fight was, there's some big fight, and he let, kids went nuts and uh, roughed up the people who were waiting to get in, and uh, so he got rolled from that, and he goes to the transit police, and um, comes like number two of the transit police, and Jack keeps making collars. I mean, they tried everything to stop Jack from making collars. They put him at the very last stop at the top of the Bronx, the very end of the line at the top of the Bronx. And uh, first of all, if anybody had a cigarette in their hand, when they put their foot on the steps, he gave them a summons for smoking on the subway. 
And then if they complained, he gave them the home phone of the head of the transit police. And then he's up at the top of the steps, and he looks and he sees these guys sawing through the roof of a bank. So he arrests these guys for bank robbery. So they're going really. And in the meantime, to get home, he has to take walk through Times Square going to and from work, he has to go through Times Square. So he just goes up and goes across the deuce and for like 20 days in a row made collars before he even got to work. Um, so they're driving, he's driving them completely out of their minds. Um, they don't know what to do with him. So Bowser calls him in and uh, asks him, says, you know, you're the most immoral man I've ever met because you're basically, you're stealing money, making all this overtime. And, uh, and uh, Jack says to the guy, you know, can we just talk man-to-man -man chief? And he goes, sure. He says, you sure? I mean, is this not chief and comp officer? This is just between us, you know? Sure. Jack goes, this is Jack is in his early 20s. This is the number two in the department. He goes, you got some fucking balls talking to me that way. And he goes on. He says, basically, you know, we have a contract. You know, I go up to people and I am afraid going up to them. And I risk my life going up to them and face them. And in return, I get, you're supposed to back me up. That's the deal. Went on and on. And Bowser was like, uh, uh, uh. Bowser was so shocked, he ended up stammering and saying, well, you do make excellent arrests. Completely backed down. And Jack, on the way out, tells Bowser used to dress really, you know, kind of uh, business executive style, you know, in keeping with his elevated position. So as Jack is about to go out, he says, you know, and another thing, Chief, Hang on to them suits, those Ricky Nelson suits. They're going to come back in style someday. <laughs> but he was fearless with them. And he was, uh, he said that one of the nuns at Holy Name School when he went, he told him that a man with a clear conscience has the strength of 10 men. And he really felt that. He felt if you feel you were right, you can do anything. And he used to say that the one thing, great thing about being a cop is that if you feel you're right, you can take action. It's like if you're working in a grocery store and you feel the beans really should be in aisle four, you have to go to a boss. The boss has to say, no, I don't think they should. I think they stay where they are. You know? But if you're a cop and you see someone committing a crime and you decide this is the right action to take, you can take that action. With that, can we jump ahead just a little bit to back in Times Square to uh, wolf packs, as they were called, and group robberies, and what Maple is trying to do about those at, at a moment. Yeah, that was when, with the decoys. Yeah. yeah. So there was a time, and they, they, they're coming back a little bit. They have what they call wolf packs, and the kids in the tougher neighborhoods are not stupid. And they figured out that if like 12 of them swarm around somebody and rob them, if the cops grab one of them or two of them, the cops aren't going to go get the others because it doesn't matter because that clears the case. Now, then if it gets to court, the victim has to say, not just was this person there, but what exactly did this person do? But all the victim knows was it was... Uh, Blur of feet and hands. I think these kids at the time, I, I remember growing up and reading the papers, I'd see these, these charged terms like wolf pack and like wilding. But I learned reading this book that, that they weren't actually, they weren't calling this either of those. They certainly weren't calling, calling it wilding, right? Oh, after was, Central Park, they called it wilding because everybody thought that that's what they were saying. But what they were saying is wilding. They were using their wiles and they were incredibly wily. Um, I mean, they had it figured out. And then, you know, almost none of them, if any of them got grabbed, none of them went to jail. 
And so they started going in. They used to. Well, why's no one going to jail when someone gets grabbed? It's just no one can ID. It's all the just victim a can't ID them. The victim right. can't say this guy did this. Oh yeah, I saw him there. What did he do? Did he hit you? Did he, was he one of the guys who hit you? Did he kick you? Well, I, I, I you know, I mean, maybe occasionally a victim would lie and then the guy would get caught, would go to jail. But generally, the message to the kids was: you can keep doing this, and no one's going to prison. And there was a saying that developed: Manhattan make it, and Brooklyn take it. And these kids would basically, they would go in from Brooklyn and other tough parts of the city, and they would hit Midtown. And for a while, they were probably the most powerful force in the city. I mean, if uh, a billionaire is walking down the street and he sees these kids coming up, he's going to cross the street. And they know that. So they were like, they had this, <laughs> it was theirs. They were, they were coming in every, and they would... Uh, They'd wear what they call throwaways, so they'd do a robbery, and then they'd throw away whatever layer they're wearing, and they would, if the description went out for a guy in a blue jacket, all of a sudden he's wearing a green jacket. Um, they had a whole, they called the, the people they robbed, they call them Vicks or Herbs. They had a whole lingo for the whole thing. They called it, um, and they, it, it was interesting is they, they None of them were using drugs. They were like athletes. They wouldn't get high and everything because, you know, they are, <laughs> it's like a sport for them. And uh, so Jack figured out that the only way to stop this is you got to do two things. And you got to collar everybody. And then what you got to do is you got to be able to overcome that hurdle of what the victim can say happened or not happened. So Jack, the other thing that happened to Jack was that partly because of the money store adventure, he and his wife parted ways. And there was this policewoman who just had this unbelievable smile. And I think in the gloom of the subway, if you see a smile like that, that can really knock you out. And I think that smile killed him. And it was this police officer, uh, Elizabeth. And, but he knew he wasn't going to get anywhere with her unless he could show her what a great cop he was. And he couldn't do that because she wasn't in his squad. She's just a rookie. She can't, you know, he can't get her in his squad. So he tells the bosses, he said, actually, you know, the way to get these kids is I need a decoy squad, a bunch of people who look nothing like cops, such as Elizabeth. So all of a sudden, he gets Elizabeth in his squad. Jack always had like nine angles at once. And um, so he gets Elizabeth in his squad, but at the same time, he figures out that if they get the kids to rob somebody in a subway car or when there's other cops all around, even if it's just by a subway entrance, they can grab them all. Um, and if some get away... They can question the ones they get, find out who they are, and then go get them. And the other thing they can do is, because it's a police officer's a victim, police officer is being very conscious just before it happens who's doing what. There's also a bunch of police witnesses, because there are all these undercover people around them. So you have a whole host of police witnesses, and you, they would get the kids to write. Jack was very good at that, getting them to write. Exactly what they'd done. Yeah. And he would say, you know, listen. You know, uh, he would convince him that, listen, we know about all the other ones you do and all this stuff. I know, I, I, you only did this one? Yeah, I only did this one. He said, you sure you only did this one? Yeah. You sure? Okay, well, if you write what you did, I'll convince the DA you didn't do all those other ones. This is the only one that you did. And then the kid writes and that's it. Um, Jack was actually brilliant at getting people to write. Um, so Wolfpack robberies went from, I think, 1,200 a year to 12 in the subway. And that's because they grabbed everybody. And it stopped in the rest of the city, too, because the, the whole, it didn't work anymore. And 
that is really kind of what propelled Jack because Bratton had come, Bill Bratton had come from Boston, and he noted that Jack with the Wolfpack thing, I mean, a reduction in crime like that was remarkable. Then he started the robbery strike force. What, what year are we in here? Because this is when Bratton comes to head transit. Right. Not, not. No, no, this NYPD. is when Bratton first comes from Boston to transit. Bratton was there briefly. That's the time that Jack reduced Wolfpack robberies the way he did. The other thing Jack did is he started, they put him on regular robberies. Um, and he started what he called the Charts of the Future. It's a little bit like that front page from the Broken Eagle all those years ago. With and, his uh, with his grandmother's killing right. and mapping all the others mapping and the, the dot for each one. That's what he did. And the, the when Jack... Each crime was important. That was the that was that was what was behind mapping each crime. And so there was a wall in the uh, room in the subway where you had all the walls lined with paper. And Jack, when he was a kid, he always wanted to have the big box of crayons and didn't. <laughs> but now he could get the big box of crayons, and he used the crayons to different colors for the lines, different colors for the kind of robbery for the time of day. And he set it all up, all the robberies, and you could look and you could see patterns. You could see where a guy's been hitting it like in the afternoon, been doing bag snatches on this line. And then you look and you discover that the description's all the same. So you call them the charts of the future and people say it's amazing. You could look and you could see patterns right away and you know what was happening. But each dot was important. That was the thing. And that was what would become the formula that would change the city because the charts of the future actually turned out to be the charts of the future because Bratton remembered when Bratton came back to run the NYPD, he knew Jack's success in transit and he figured that Jack could do the same thing in the city. And that's what he did. He basically, he turned the department over to Jack. <laughs> There's a great story you tell in here in brief. This book is full of just these little asides and stories that, that tell a lot about a robbery case in Brooklyn where one of uh, the cops who's working for Maple, I believe is a lieutenant now, says the prosecutor wants to reduce the charge to a petite larceny. And then Maple shows up at the prosecutor's office and uh, tells him, you know, this guy who just got robbed, that was the ambassador from Nigeria. And the prosecutor hems and haws and says, oh, no, no, that's going to be a robbery charge after all. And then he says, so it's different on who gets robbed, Jack. Uh, Jack said, I caught you, you little scumbag. <laughs> that's right. That's the way he was. And he would talk to them. I mean, that's, that's exactly what he did. And that's like 88, 89, right when New York is reaching sort of, sort of uh, the crime numbers are reaching a, a really, yeah. really high peak. Yeah. And they had what they, they called misdemeanor homicides. They happened in certain neighborhoods. Nobody got really upset. And uh, or public service homicides, they call them too. Ah, the um, I mean, I so anyway, so Bratton comes, and you know, that was Jack's thing. It's you know, a robbery is a robbery, it doesn't matter who it was. You're supposed to treat every crime as if the victim was your grandmother, right? That's what you're supposed to do. And later on, people would say, well, he was a genius at numbers and statistics and all that. The only number that mattered was one. And the only time he would use statistics was just to convey the importance of one, that you don't round them off. And when he would say exactly how many robberies, exactly how many homicides, it wasn't like Rain Man rattling off statistics. It was all each fucking one is important. That's, that is what changed the whole city. So Jack starts, I mean, the first night Jack was uh, deputy commissioner. But so we're jumping ahead just a little here. Yeah. With um, Braddon comes in, right? He uh, he gets a sense. Uh, wait, wait, this guy is pretty brilliant. He brings when he comes in, in his, his, transit. He yeah, gets transit. In, he realizes that Jackson's mm -hmm. genius. He, he does realize that. He starts bringing in some 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 guys from his academic consulting class who, right. who you are not terribly impressed with. Uh, right. 
George Kelling, who's the, the, the co-inventor of the broken windows theory, right. squeegee man and all that. But Braddon, who, who's a very impressive leader in my view in like a Lee Iacocca-like way, like yeah. a guy who knows how to be the face of an operation, share credit, all those sorts of things. It's like th- this is the guy I'm riding with. with yeah, Maple. sharing credit is the key to Bratton. He does share credit. He's a little enamored with the academic guys, but that's because Bratton got his big break when he was in Boston from Wasserman, who was one of the academic guys. Yep. You know? And Jack would let him, you know, Jack used to say, it's not broken windows, it's broken balls. <laughs> it's, like, you know, it's like it isn't like some broken window is going to like foster crime. What fosters crime is criminals. So, so once Braddon gets there, a transit, Jack starts, goes from like a fast rise to something like a, uh, a meteoric one. Biggest Just, jump, is, as Jack would say, it's like going from an ensign, ensign in the Coast Guard to being a U.S. Navy Na- admiral all in one jump. He went from being a K-cop, right, lieutenant. Um, actually, he wasn't, I think I had to make him take the lieutenant's test and then he took it and didn't study and scored so high they thought he must have cheated. So they made him take it again, and he scored higher. Um, so he goes from being a transit lieutenant right, to being deputy police commissioner of the city of New York for crime control strategies. Right? Jack thought that was a great position. You know, the badge has three stars. So Jack went to a jeweler and had him put on a four star. <laughs> He figures I'm better than these other fucks. So, um, so Bratton basically says, okay, the first night he's out, he's got a car. Now, Jack is a terrible driver. The first time in his life he drove a police car, he ran up to a, pulled up to a scene and hit a cop. Um, he's gotten a bit better driver than he was in our youth. And he didn't want a driver. He wanted to just drive himself. Yeah. So he's in a car and he calls operations. He says, uh, I forget the exact numbers, but he says, hey, it's Commissioner Maple. Is anything going on? He says, no, it's quiet, Commissioner. He goes, how many homicides? You got any homicides? Well, we got three in Brooklyn. Oh, yeah? How about the Bronx? Yeah, we got three there, too. So, how about Queens? Yeah, we got two. Uh, how about Manhattan? Yeah, well, you know, we got two. But they're both above 125th Street. And he goes, uh, all's quiet, right? All's quiet, Commissioner. <laughs> that was how crazy it was. And he starts driving to and showing up at a lot of these homicide scenes all around the city, right. right? This is at a time of what they would call misdemeanor homicides. Nobody cared. Right. And, and you know, not the press was complicit service. in that, too. You know, I mean, there was murders all over the place that would never get covered. Well, press, press still is to an extent, yeah, you mean, know? Our first day at the Daily News, they said, there's two dead on East 86th Street. Get going. So I grabbed my notepad. I'm going to go on my big first big Daily News thing. And then they go, oh, never mind. It's the super and his wife. So, but, you know, Jack would go on these. I mean, he called up operations and he said, I want you to notify me about every homicide, right? So they like screwing with people. So they would wait till like three in the morning to notify him. (laughs) He liked that. He he actually liked that they would do that with him because it's like what he would do. And um, so all these detectives are used to, you know, in crime scene People and all this are used to homicides where nobody cares, nobody shows up. All of a sudden, here's Fatso here, uh, wanting to know what's going on. And then, and then, not long after this, if, if I have this right, Fatso starts asking the uh, you know the precinct commanders who are having the regular meetings, like in their precinct, to uh, come down to one police plaza and share what's actually going on there. Right. And they were, and they, they started something they called Comstat. And every precinct commander would have to come in regularly and explain what they're doing about particular crimes. Now, if you got robbed on Central Park South, they always at least look for somebody. But in Black Brooklyn, so you have the guy come in and then uh, they have a, he had it so that the computerized, the charts of the future became a computerized map, dot map. Yep. So Jack would say. Uh, five and a quarter floppy this. That's yeah, how long ago we're talking. Right. It was. And then uh, and it was like a big thing. And so Jack would say, uh, let's say the guy's coming in from East New York. He goes, what about those five robberies on Junior Street? What'd you do about them? The guy being a cop at line, he said, well, I called the robbery squad. 
Jericho. Oh, yeah? Who'd you talk to? I talked to Garrity. Oh, yeah? What day was that? Tuesday. Call the robbery squad and see if Garrity was working Tuesday. And the guy, oh, you know, I, I, I might have talked to Ginty. But the next time he told the truth, and that's what changed everything. And the, the sad thing that eventually happened with Comstat was that after Jack left, they, they, people who didn't understand what it was about, who thought it was about statistics and numbers, started using it as a personal management tool. Just to jump in for one second there. Yeah. So, so in these first several Giuliani years, you have this small drop in the crime numbers that starts under Mayor Dinkins and Commissioner Ray Kelly at the time. And then it accelerates really dramatically while Braddon and Maple are there. Right. Um, they, they have ambitions to do more of this. Uh, Giuliani, being Giuliani, is actually stunned both the crime is going down this much and that this is happening without more people getting locked up as they're getting the right people and not so much just running the numbers. Um, you know, get, gets... His ego keeps getting hurt about whose helicopter is taken off first. This this is all yeah. in the book and uh, whose name is in which headlines in these parts. And finally, Braddon and this whole crew he's assembled, including Jack, end up leaving. And after right. they leave, the idea, as you were saying, is uh, we're going to double down on the numbers. So instead of each, each each one, each fucking one mattering, it's like we need we need more ones. Right. And, and the other thing is they want to prove that they're smart too. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. so. And, and the numbers do, in fact, keep going down, but the number of uh, real scandals and problems start, starts increasing pretty dramatically in, in Giuliani's second term with, 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 uh, with, with gun cops and with plainclothes units and with uh, unnecessary arrests and, and all sorts oh, yeah, of it became, issues. It was. And stops and frisks, although that doesn't become the, the label issue until Bloomberg gets there and Kelly returns. And like they, Jack, Jack in said that the important thing is it has to be fair. You have to be fair. And the other thing is it's not about – it's about addressing each crime as it's important. Not just the numbers, not just the stats, but each crime. And, you know, so you and went from Did he like, use the numbers as a management tool or is that something that happens after he leaves? It happens after he leaves, mainly. He wasn't, he wasn't saying, oh, somebody made so many, so many summonses or something like this. That was not him. It was not what he was about. And then that becomes a big thing and, and yeah. like an implicit quota system and really yeah, puts yeah. The, like, the ACLU and the PBA yeah. on the same correct side of things. Like, what's happening here? These are. Jack wouldn't put, wouldn't say, uh, how many summons did you do the issue? He would say, you know, um, you know, how many robberies are there? And what'd you do about those robberies? Right. And if the robberies are up, he wouldn't just say, all right, you know, your robberies are up. You know, you're in trouble for robberies are up. He'd say, well, what'd you do about each one of those? And he would also kind of constantly push them to think, you know. Like if there's a particular robbery, oh, they, they, they took his Yankee tickets. Oh, yeah, was anybody at the seats the next day to see if the guy showed up? I mean, it was just things like that. Um, well, they would, narcotics, they would say, well, we like to concentrate on the big ones, right? So, so Jack would say, uh, where do you live, Clarksville or something like that? How would you feel if, if you came out every morning and there's crack files all over the street when you're walking your kid to school? And then the guy would say, you're right. And then they'd actually start addressing things. Um, but it was a question of focusing on addressing crime. And you, and in doing that, you went from, and also being fair, and you went from a cop like Jack standing in front of the mirror to study the shapes that guns went to cops just upping everybody. And they didn't just like go in your pocket. They went in your socks. They went in everything because they weren't just looking for guns. They're looking for, for marijuana or whatever. They're looking just to make collars so that the collars could become numbers. If Jack stopped, if when Jack was a cop, if he stopped somebody, it was because he had serious reason to believe that the person was carrying a gun, and that was why he would approach them. I mean, it's it just you know, you can you can reduce gun crime by going out and stopping everybody who steps outside the 
outside of that, their house. I mean, that's not police work. I mean, what police work is, is that you become expert at spotting guns. And that you stop people when you have serious reason to believe they are carrying a gun. That's it. I mean, and you know, you know, you, uh, but it became all about, I mean, they would stop, they were stopping people were out there walking with their families or, you know, it was crazy. It was really bad. Jack would not have been happy. And Jack, you tell in the book, he ends up living not all that far from the Oak Bar. He ends up. Oh, yeah, in the same street. The same street that he walked along when he was covered with blood. He ended up living in a studio apartment. How did he manage that? You know, that's one of the uh, small bits. I guess you could call it corruption where uh, real estate people traditionally in the city have given. See, the thing is about. If you're in city government, if you're a big shot, you don't make big shot money. <laughs> but they want to live like big shots. Yep. So the real estate people were given like, you know, there's an apartment building on the east side where like I think 20 former commissioners and judges live. I mean, it's like, so Jack got a studio apartment on Central Park South at a rent that he could actually pay. Um, and he was very happy to be there. And then, Though he did look out the first morning, he looked out and there was a guy having sex with the park down below. So Jack from the 16th floor shouted down, hey, you, stop effing my park. <laughs> the guy looked over his shoulder like God had called down at him. And after he leaves, you were telling me he was doing consulting work for New Orleans and other places. Yep. Yep. And, you know, I was thinking maybe. Newark. He said, if you say things. Newark fast, you can make it sound like New York. Newark, Newark. <laughs> Thinking that, that that he may be the police commissioner in New York at some point, and he, then he definitely would have been. I don't think there's any question. And and then I, I'm he gets cancer. Yeah, not much older than, than than I am, a little younger than you are. Yeah, and he dies on September 10th of 2001. Oh no, it's this. It was. It wasn't. It wasn't September 10th. I think it was like. Um, mm-hmm. Wasn't the day before? I don't think. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't think so. I think it was like a couple of days before. It was like August eighth. I think he died. Oh god. I yeah. think. Yeah. I think yeah. August eighth, if I remember right. I, I I had it in my mind because it was just before. But yes, I'm looking. Yeah. At the book and I was right I was there with his wife. His wife was a, was a police attendant, and she didn't want to call anybody, so she just, just cranked up the air conditioning and just sat there for like six hours, and finally. She asked me, I think, think we're going to get in trouble. I said, I don't know, you're the police lieutenant. And then so they finally called and then um, came down and they had him in a body bag and they put him in a hearse and they rolled slowly down that same, right past the Oak Bar. So we had a very long stretch of declining crime numbers, dramatically right. and then more slowly and with more and more pressure on the numbers right. as, as time advanced. And at this point, the uh, the bad old days, so-called, are 30 years ago. And as somebody who was here and who knew Maple and witnessed all this, like, what do you think has gotten lost, both from, say, the uh, the police advocates and the police reformers, if you will, over time about what Maple did, how it transformed New York, and what policing in New York should be? And I'll tell you that I went to community books, which I walked by all the time. Um, Park Slope. And I went in and I said, do you have authors events? And they, I got a book coming out. And they said, well, what's it about? I said, it's how the NYPD saved the city. <laughs> the woman behind the counter rolled her eyes. <laughs> now, believe it. I could remember a homicide directly across the street from there. Yeah. I could remember two on the next corner. I could re- remember two more on the next corner. I can remember my daughter used to always like, my daughter who was around two shootings, um, I remember there was a tree that she used to always see if it was going to bud for the spring. And then we ran up there um, when she was about six to look at the, for the buds. And there was a huge pool of blood at the base of the tree because someone had beat the guy, a guy's brains out with a branch. This is prime real estate Park Slope, Brooklyn. Like if you have mm-hmm. a fixer up at Brownstone these right. days, we're talking $3 million. Yeah. It is a very... Genteel. It is now, but it, it was, and that was, and if I know all those homicides there, 
you can imagine, I mean, I went to 35 murders in one weekend when I was writing crime. So, I mean, they just have no conception of what it was and they have no appreciation for how it got reduced. And it wasn't reduced by beating people over the head. It was reduced for a lot of people doing a lot of work. And um, the thing that gets me nuts is you have people from outside the city, largely from the suburbs, who move in. They generally go to neighborhoods where they would not live if the police hadn't made the neighborhood safe enough for them to live. And they generally move into apartments where people of color have been pushed out because of the rents. And then they go around talking about the racist police. And what gets me nuts is when they go, whose streets are streets? <laughs> That gets me nuts. So just as a guy who uh, grew up here and has watched police, I see police do things that to me seem sometimes racist in application. It might oh, not be do. the they individual officer are. and severely wrong. So so yeah. when I was just saying, I, if I would be farther east in Brooklyn and I would see like a significant police presence that didn't seem to be responding to stuff, but seemed to just be sort of stopping young guys more or less at random, that bothered me. It bothered me during the George Floyd protests when there were absolutely people chanting nasty stuff at the police. I just, I've seen police officers acting wildly and in ways that no, just seem wrong. There, there's definitely bad cops among them. There's no, I mean, the... So, so, so writing a book about, about really good cops right now, and we haven't even talked about uh, Stephen McDonald, who, who right. Uh, you know, who is shot and paralyzed and forgives paralyzed the, uh, from the neck down, from, can't yeah. even breathe on yeah. his own. Yeah, and, and both remains a a, a a member in every essential sense of the police department and somebody modeling this exceptional Christian forgiveness toward the uh, the kid who's done this to him. Um, but you're writing a book about these exemplars of uh, humanity at their best. And do you see them as representative of fundamentally what the department is these days or what it should aspire to? Do you see what I mean? Like how, how, how do, how do these, these exceptional figures relate to this much bigger institution? They are the models for the way a cop should behave. And, and I think that most cops go in looking to do good. A lot of them lose that. And I think Stephen was kind of a reminder. I mean, after Stephen McDonald, on a summer day in Central Park, walked up to three teens and a 15-year-old shot him in the face and then shot him again when he was lying on the ground. And Stephen's wife was two months pregnant. Actually, it's worth some time doing a whole thing about the nurse who saved his life, who represents all the resilience and strength of Harlem. As if the kid represented the pathology of Harlem, this woman represented the strength of Harlem. If I may just real quick to summarize yeah. a couple of things from the book, she gets rejected from nursing place after nursing place, a black woman, yeah. finally ends up getting accepted into one, I think is confused, Jewish place, but because of her last Jewish. name, yeah. <laughs> um, which doesn't immediately say she, that, that she's black and ends up as his nurse basically because all the nurses thought he was going to die and didn't want to be the nurse who was taking care yeah. of him when that happened. And thus he ends up with this uh, black woman there who's telling him, no, not giving you more of this, this pain medicine. Yeah. Listen, listen to your, uh, you know, inside your wife's belly to, 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 to your son. You I need mean, to live. Did, I tell you what, she came in, he couldn't talk. He's mouthing. Yeah. And she figured out, he's saying, I want to die. I want to die. I want to die. She goes, Steven, you can't die. I don't get paid for dead bodies. <laughs> you died. I don't get any money. So he really, she shows him the one thing he can do is laugh. And then he's clicking his 
tongue off the roof of his mouth and she realized he wants more drugs and it's not for pain, it's to zoom out. She goes, I'll tell you what, Stephen, I'm gonna go to Harlem. I'm gonna get the best crack in Harlem. I'm gonna put it right in the ventilator. Stephen, you're gonna love this. It's gonna be the best thing you ever felt. So I got him laughing again, but he was still sinking down to I wanna die. And then when the wife was seven months pregnant, Nina knew the baby was moving by then, so she put a stool next to the bed and told, asked the wife, come over here, lift up your blouse and put your belly against the side of his face. He could feel above his neck and he could feel the baby move and that changed everything. And then jump ahead to that baby's christening. Stephen said that this badge I wear is the badge of compassion and I forgive the young man who shot me with the hope he'd go on and do something with his life. That was not the most popular move in the history of New York City Police Department. And not long afterwards, there was a kid, Eddie Byrne, got murdered sitting in a car outside a drug witness's house, assassinated, 21 years old, Queens, and hits funeral. Stephen shows up in dress uniform. It took forever to figure out how to get him into the uniform with raising his arms, and they, they did. So he's going in a motorized wheelchair with a portable ventilator down the length of the people waiting to salute the coffin. And you could hear a couple pairs of white gloves, because they all wore white gloves at the funeral, they kind of muffled, starting to applaud. And then all of a sudden you had thousands of cops applauding Stephen. And that's because he touched that part in them. And that's what you got to keep touching in them. And he showed up both at policing events, yeah. at schools, talking with, with like, Kids in harder neighborhoods oh, all yeah. over the city. His favorite question was a kid a kid in the South Bronx asked him, how do you open your Christmas presents? <laughs> I mean, and, you know, it brings, you know, his son became a cop. And then his son got promoted. And you go to the promotion and everybody salutes when the colors come in. Stephen can't salute. Everybody uh, applauds when people get their promotions. Stephen can't applaud. Right? So Connor, his son, comes over, and what does he do? He kisses his father on the forehead. In the middle of this police ceremony, you had that tenderness and that love. That is what you have to keep. And Stephen's whole thing was, he's, it, says, it says on the memorial to him, love is the way. I mean, so you got a, a cop saying love is the way. But then you jump, that badge of compassion, his son got that same badge. He's standing in the streets during the demonstrations, and he's standing next to the cop who gave his boots to the homeless guy who went viral. They're standing next to each other. And all these kids are coming up, and they're uh, racist cop, murderers, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, the sergeant, Annie McGinnis, said, you know what I noticed about all these kids who were snarling at me? I said, what? He said, they all have really nice teeth. He said, they must have great orthodontics. He said, my kids' teeth are a mess. But, I mean, they know who these kids are. And... You know, there were protesters from tough neighborhoods, and I think that cops would give them a lot more credence than they would these kids from the suburbs. Um, given that, are there things that cops do that are flat out wrong? Absolutely. I mean, you saw that in the demonstration, that cop pushing that young woman down the way he did with none of the other cops even seeing, you know, she all right or... That stuff's just no good, and that's not acceptable. And it's not, um, it's not like, by saying you got to honor and look at the good cops do and the good that they have done in the city and all the, I mean, there are thousands of people walking around the city in New York who would have been murdered. Um, that's not to ignore the bad shit. It just make it, actually, the good stuff makes the bad stuff worse. I mean, if you're a cop and you do something shameful or if you don't go get, do everything you can to get a victimizer, then you're dishonoring Stephen McDonald. You're dishonoring Jack Mabel. Whose son is also a police yeah, officer, Yeah, he's, right? he's actually Brooklyn Warrant Squad. Yeah, he's, that's Brendan. He's, um... And when he, when he first became a cop, he went... He, went out of his way, because if you're sort of a name in the department, you have yeah. some say in where you end up going to, to go to the 7-5. You know, he has, Brendan shows that he's like his father in a funny way by not, 
you know, Jack had his own way of looking at things. Mm -hmm. Cops can, if, if your father was a cop, you can put in to have his shield number. And if it's available, you can get it. So when Brendan, the son, was graduating, the, they called me from 1PP in a panic. What was Jack's shield number? What was Jack's shield number? I said, why? I said, well, you know, he put that, Brendan put in for a shield number. It doesn't match the number we have. What was it? So I called Brendan, and he goes, oh, that's my mother's shield. <laughs> the mother being Elizabeth, who was responsible for the creation of the decoy squad. The, um, so this, uh, who would think Jack Maple's son would ask for his mother's shield? I mean, no one even imagined that. Now, the other thing that happened was, so Brendan now, because of he is Jack Maple's son, he can go anywhere he wants. And generally, cops with a lot of connections, they'll go to like Midtown South, or Midtown North, work in Manhattan or, you know. Um, Brendan's sides, he looks and he sees the highest crime in the city is in the 7-5 precinct in Brooklyn. So that's where he decides to go. And it's like, he's there a few days and his commander officer calls him up and says, Maple, come over here. He goes, I didn't even know who you were. He said, look at this text I got. And the text was, did Jack Maple's son really report for duty at the 7-5 precinct? And he did. And that's, you know, God bless him. Michael Daly, that was a, an hour and a bit. We barely scratched the surface of the book, uh, New York's Finest. Stories of the NYPD and the Hero Cops Who Saved the City. You can always read daily at The Daily Beast. It's an American news website. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking Thank the time. You. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. God bless. F-A-Q. FAQ.NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of independent journalists, artists, and critics. Online at The Brick. House. We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research, and recorded today from the borough of Brooklyn. Special thanks to our guest, Michael Daly of The Daily Beast. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn, and Adam Kamara mixed and edited today's episode. As always, be good, be cool, be kind, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>